All right, well, welcome everyone to part two of a series that I'm doing called Who Am I? You know, I'm excited for this series because every one of us often asks this question of who am I? It's a question every single one of us in this room want to know why. And as we go through life and different stages of our life, we keep asking that question of who am I? Because some of understanding who am I helps us understand our purpose in life. And there's a deep need in us to understand our purpose in life. So people today, we like to talk about identity. We talk about like, who am I? Because we want to understand our identity. And I think our culture has shifted so much in the recent years with, the, with the social media and just cell phones and just the, the communication that we have with each other that's so much easier because we can now create an identity of who we want to be. Social media, that's part of it. We put out there who we want people to think we are instead of our identity really coming from our relationship with the Lord. We have this wrestling match going on in our life of being more concerned about who do we want people to think that I am or who do we want people to, uh, to think about me. And so we have this whole culture in our church and society that let's create this perfect version of ourselves. Let's put it out there on social media, what we want people to see about us. And then we have to not only create that, but then we got to preserve it. And I think it's hard for people to kind of preserve this false identity that you want people to think you are. Now, fortunately, God was well aware of what would be happening in social media in the 21st century, well aware of the struggle that we have as individuals to, pr to try to present this idealized version of ourselves to other people. God knew the, strugg the struggles that we would have to form our identity, so he made it easy for us. God made it easy for us to understand that our identity or, or who we are is simply formed by our relationship with God. That our relationship with God would determine the core of our being that would determine our identity and determine who we are. I love the fact that King David, in 2 Samuel, verse 7, or 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, he comes to a point in his life where God had richly blessed him. God had taken care of all of his needs. God had blessed him. He delivered him. And David comes before God and he says, Who am I? Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? Basically, David's coming before God and saying, God, you have blessed me in ways that I never could have imagined. You have done things in my life that I never could have anticipated. And now I'm just coming before you saying, God, why did you do all this for me? In humility, David comes before God and says, why? Why have you been so good to me? And I think some of us, when we get to that place in our life that God has been good with us, we kind of struggle. Is he good to me because it's a reward because I've been such a good person? Or, or why did he do this? Or am I just a random lucky person? And I think that's kind of the attitude that David's going before God, just saying, God, help me understand because we all know that grace is a free gift of God, that God comes into our life and does things for us that we could never earn or deserve, and it's not a reward. Instead, God's gift of grace is a free thing that he does in our life. But I think sometimes our theology about God's gift of grace is a little bit more determined or probably a little bit more shaped and molded by our view as a kid about Christmas. We all have this idea in our head that if we're really good, we're going to get more presents. We all have this little idea about Santa Claus, and we always tell our kids, hey, you be really good, Santa's going to come. You want some good gifts? Your behavior determines it. Yeah, Sam just gave us Christmas less. But, you know, God comes in with this gift of grace and says, you know what? You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you because of my love. 
And it's hard for us sometimes to understand that God's love is not conditional based on us, but it's always just based on his goodness. So I want to read through 2 Samuel 7 today. I'm going to read through the first big chunk of it. I'm going to read up to uh, chapter, verse 21. This is a wonderful story we started talking about last week, but I want to read the story again because it's a very pivotal story in the history of Israel. And it's a powerful story because I think when you look at David, you'll be able to see a little bit of what God wants to do in your own life. So 2 Samuel 7, when David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan, the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to God, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherd of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I, told, I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have, displayed, I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to the rule of my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed. Who am I, O Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to all your servants." So last week we did read through that section of Scripture, and I read it again today because we're just going to continue on to discuss this chapter and to help us understand more of who we are. I'm going to be doing a little repeating some, from some of the message last week. Some of you will be like, okay, I remember that. And the reason I'm repeating is because I think, I'll be honest, last week's message was, turned out really good, and I liked it. You know, there's sometimes I drive away from here, I'm like, oh man, what was I thinking? Or, you know, you kind of like, that sounded really good on paper. And then you get up here and you're like, I 
just kind of missed it a little bit. Last week was one of those weeks you're like, okay, that was actually a really good message. So, hey, you know, you do a good message, I'm going to repeat it again. So I'm going to repeat parts of it just to highlight some of the importance of really understanding this identity that we have in Christ. But also some of it, too, I'm going to lead into some other areas that I want to discuss this week. Because I think it is so powerful that we understand our identity that Christ has given to us because there is so much competition that we have with the world that's trying to influence to say this is what your identity is when God the whole time is saying no I'm the creator and I've determined your identity for you so we go back to this chapter 7 in 2nd Samuel with David he's sitting in his palace and he's sitting there looking at how successful the Lord's made him that the Lord has delivered him from being a shepherd boy, that the Lord's defeated his enemies for him, and now David is sitting safe and secure in this beautiful palace. And he looks out the window, and he can see that God is living in a three-, four-hundred-year-old tent. And David's just overwhelmed with the goodness of God and says, you know what, I'm going to build a temple for God. That's what I'm going to do. I need to build a temple for God. And so David says to his friend Nathan, his prophet, said, look, this is what I'm going to do. And Nathan's first response is, super, go do it. You should do that. But that after the Lord visits Nathan and says to him, no, David's not the one to build it. Instead, God says to David, you know what, David, I I did find you in in a pasture. I did defeat your enemies, and I have done a lot of things in your life. In fact, the palace that you're living in, you didn't even have to build it for yourself. I had somebody else build that house for you to live in. And David says, God, God says to David, I don't want you to build me a palace because I don't need that from you. In fact, I have a better plan for your life. So God tells David, he says, look, I'm going to bless you in a way that you never could imagine. One of your descendants is going to be raised up, and he's going to build the temple. And then from your family line, actually, the Savior of the world is going to come through. That's pretty astonishing to think that the Lord gave a promise to David and said, from you, Jesus Christ will be born. This is ultimately the highest point in David's life, and he is celebrating. That's why he comes before God and says, who am I? Why are you doing these great things? And the prayer that David prayed, we didn't read all of that today. I'm going to focus on that next week. Is probably one of the most intimate prayers that we do read in the Bible. It's a beautiful response that David has when he goes before the Lord and says, wow, I just really can't believe all that you're doing in my life. So it's very evident that David does realize that everything good that's happening in his life is coming from God. But one thing that I do like about David is that he, he goes before God And he says in verse 21, he says, God, what more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like. David goes before God and says, God, you're going to do all these amazing things for me, but deep down inside, I'm not really that good of a person. David has the humility enough to go before God and say, you know what, why are you doing this? I'm not that good of a person. I have a lot of dark thoughts going inside of me. I have some behaviors that are not really that good. I have a lot of propensity towards sin that's not that good. I have a lot of proclivity towards sin that's not that good. But yet, God, you are still doing a work in my life. And I'm having a hard time understanding that because, God, why are you blessing a person that inside they're dealing with a lot of darkness or they're dealing with a lot of obstacles or a lot of challenges? So David's honest. He gets vulnerable before God and says, why are you doing this? See, there's a common theme throughout David's writings. Some of you know that David wrote many of the Psalms. One of the themes that David writes about is that God, he says, you know the hidden things about me. David writes in the Psalms that there is no place that you can go to hide from God. And that's a beautiful thing that you can't hide from God because it means that you can always be found. 
But at the same time, if you can't hide from God, that means he knows everything that's going on inside of you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings. He knows your emotions. But see, the good thing about God is he knows those things, and he understands, and he shows compassion. God doesn't reject people because he knows what's the inner turmoil that they might be dealing with. Or God doesn't reject people because he knows about their past. Or he knows about where they're maybe conjuring up and even in their thoughts. But God wants to know those things going on inside of you because God is always concerned to love people and to help people and support people and to lift them up. God is always more concerned with validating people and bringing them to a new place of stability than he is just outright punishing people. So I love the question that David says to God. He says, who am I? David says to God, who am I? Because David knows something that a lot of us fail to understand is that our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions do not determine who we are. David understood that his thoughts and his emotions and his feelings do not determine his identity. And they do not determine who he is. David understood that. Because David understood that the feelings inside of him were not that attractive to God that God would say, look, I'm going to have the Savior come from your family line. So David comes before God and says, God, if my feelings don't, don't determine who I am, then what does determine who I am? How do you decide my identity? See, our identity is always determined by God. See, biblical authority always determines who we are. Feelings don't determine who we are. Our circumstances do not determine who we are. Instead, what determines who we are is always our relationship with God. Our relationship with God determines who we are. See, we often hear in the Bible the phrase that David was a man after God's own heart. And it's rightly so that we hear that because in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, the prophet Samuel is talking to the current King Saul. And he says to Saul, he says, But now, Saul, your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. So the prophet Samuel is saying to the current King Saul, you know what, you're going to be out of a job really soon because a God has already found David and he's going to be the next king. And we read this chapter and oftentimes we think, well, David was a man after God's own heart. David must have been a really, really, really good person. That David must have been up here as far as his spirituality and his piety and his relationship with God. And the rest of us are probably really low down here. We kind of have this idea that David just really had it going from day one. That there was something super special about David that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. And that's why he was a man after God's own heart. I think sometimes we read that he was a man after God's own heart and we thought, okay, David, you must have done something that was super extraordinary to be a man after God's own heart. I like what John Walton, he's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College, what he says. He says, when we look into this Hebrew phrase, a man after God's own heart, we will find that it points us in a different interpretive direction. Rather than indicating David's spirituality, it indicates the fact that David meets God's criteria for kingship. He is simply God's choice. Saul was a people's choice. David was a God's choice. How was David a man after God's own heart? He was simply God's choice. There wasn't anything extra special about David. David was simply God's choice. Now, this doesn't eliminate the fact that David was a good guy and that David was a man who knew how to praise God and David was a man who knew how to repent 
It's a good thing he did because he made a lot of poor choices. So David was a man who did love the Lord and a man who did love to repent. But the fact is, David was God's choice. And when you become God's choice, he equips you to do whatever he's called you to do. And if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are God's choice. And because you are God's choice, God will equip you to do whatever he has called you to do. And God has called each of us to be a person like David, to be a king in a way. You might not be king of Israel, but you could be responsible for Jesus Christ entering in your family line. You could be responsible for Jesus Christ coming to know somebody in your family line or your friend line. The same way God did use David to bring Jesus Christ into his family line, God wants to use us in the same way to bring Jesus into our family line or into our friendship line or to our community or to the people that we work for. See, the fundamental principle is that God wants to use us in the same way he used David, and that is to bring Jesus Christ into the world. So the upshot of our message last week was simply that who we are or our identity is only determined by God. Since God is a creator, he is the only one who can determine who we are. Nobody else can determine our identity except God because he is our creator. We can determine how we behave, but who we are is determined by our creator. And sometimes we get that a little confused. We think our behavior determines our identity, and it's never supposed to be that way. Our behavior only determines how we behave. It doesn't determine our identity or who we are in Christ. David said over and over again in the Psalms and his other writings that God is great. It's kind of David's summary of God. God is simply great. Because David knew that when you understand the greatness of God, it is going to determine and it's going to influence who you are. Who we are is only supposed to be influenced by God's greatness. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, it says, So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. See, in other words, what the Bible's saying in this verse, it's saying, as we see and as we understand more of the greatness of God, or we experience more of the glory of God, or we experience more of the revelation of God, or we experience more of the impact of God's in our life, it's going to make us more and more like Him. That's how our identity is formed. Not just formed by our relationship with God, but the time that we spend with Him and the time that we see His glory formed in us. Now, it'd be easy to listen to this message that I'm doing and saying, you know, that everything that is in our life is determined by God's goodness. That everything in our life is determined by God's grace, which it is. But easy at this point is to be thinking, then how does it even matter how I live my life? If our identity is formed by a relationship with God and what God's doing in our life, does it even matter how I live? Does it matter how I behave? Does it matter what I do? If God's greatness is my greatest influence in life, does it even matter? What if David decided he's going to build that temple anyway? God said to David, no, you're not the one to build the temple. What if David said, you know, I'm going to do it anyway? What if David said, you know, I, I, I check my heart. My heart's right. David could have easily said, you know, I'm going to build this, how, this temple for God because it sounds like the right thing to do. 
Because after all, all the other kings build the temple for their God. That's what kings did in that day. David could have even argued. He could have went back to the passage in Deuteronomy that said somebody is going to build a, a temple for God in Jerusalem. David could have went back to that scripture and said, hey, I have a scripture that says somebody is supposed to build a temple for God, and I believe that's me, and so I am going to do it. See, back in David's day, there was this, this, this was this, uh, uh, all the kings, what they would do is they would build a temple to their own God. It was kind of a way to say thank you to the God for letting, allowing them to be king, allowing them to uh, have this, uh, this, uh, this nation that they ruled over. So all the kings, what was expected that they would do is that they would build a temple. So David could have more or less easily said, you know, this is the expectation that the people have that I would do, that I will build this temple. And all the people expected he would do that. So David has a problem on his hand. The people are expecting it because that is what a good king does. You build a temple to the God, and if you're, hopefully, they think that if you build that, then God is going to even bless you further. So the people in that day were probably saying, yeah, build a temple. We want you to build a temple. David's conflicted. Is he going to please God or is he going to please the people? That's the dilemma that he's forced with. Who am I going to please? Am I going to let down God or am I going to let down the people? Now, fortunately, we know what David did. He did do the right thing. And it's interesting because, you know, David's dream, David's goal was pure. God actually told David not to do something that is honorable and is very noble. You remember in that passage, Nathan's first response to David when David first said, I want to build a temple for God. Nathan's first response was, go do it. It sounds like the right thing to do. Nathan actually said to David, he said, all that is in your heart. Actually, that phrase shows that David's heart was filled with gratitude. David had a right heart. He had right intentions. He had pure motives. Everything that David was thinking inside was pure and right and noble and honest and trustworthy. But yet God said no. You read in 1 Kings 8, verse 18, this is when Solomon, actually Solomon, David's ascendant, is building the temple. And David's praises, or Solomon prayed this to God. He said, but the Lord told him, Solomon's talking about what the Lord said to David, you wanted to build the temple to honor my name. Your intention is good, but you're not the one to do it. You don't expect that. You don't expect God to say to somebody, hey, you got really good intentions. What you want to do is noble and honorable, but you're not the right one to do it. But yet that's what God said to him. Because David's heart and his David's heart and his desires did not give him permission to do it. Instead, God had something better for David to do. And God chose somebody else to build it. See, I think we all get used to the idea of God saying no in our life when it refers to sin. That we understand when God says, no, you can't do something because it's sinful, and we talk about how God protects us, and he doesn't want us to sin because you know, it doesn't lead to good things in our life. We understand that. But I think on the flip side, we have a hard time sometimes understanding that God would actually say no to us to do something good. That sometimes doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think what we see in this passage, in this text from Samuel, that when God says no, it's always because he has something better for our lives. That every time that we come to God in prayer, we might pray for something and God might say, no, that's not because he's withholding, it's because he has something better for us. And sometimes that is a hard lesson to learn. Sometimes that's a really hard reality 
when God says no or God doesn't answer the prayers how we would like him to. God said no to David because he had something better for David. But this is the catch. David wouldn't see the temple in his own lifetime. His son would. Sometimes when God says no to us, we're not going to understand why in this lifetime. But God might say no to us because he wants the generations that follow us to have a benefit. Sometimes our actions and our behavior is nothing more than to bless the next generation after us. But see, that's hard for us because we want the blessing now. It'd been easy for, I, I do wonder if David struggled inside himself and said, but I want to build the temple. I want people to know that I did that. But David had to defer what he wanted to do so the next generation could be blessed. And sometimes that is why our obedience is so important because it's going to impact the next generation. I think probably most people in this room have heard God say no. I think most of you in this room have heard a prayer, has said a prayer or two to God, and you don't get the answer that you want. And that's a hard situation to be in when the prayers aren't answered how you want them to be. Sometimes we wonder, is God even listening? I think we see in David's situation that God's listening, but he had something better for David. See, unfortunately, most of us do not have the prophet Nathan sitting by our side to explain everything to us when it doesn't happen. David did have that advantage, but we do have the advantage of the Bible. We do have that next to us that's going to lead us and guide us and direct us, but hard thing about the Bible is the simple fact that the Bible tells us everything that we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. Sometimes there's things that we want to know that simply are not in the 66 books of the Bible. And that can be a little frustrating. In our culture where we can Google anything, there's just some things you can't Google. And that puts us in a place that can be difficult. Because we want to know why that prayer is not answered. We want to know why that feeling's not changed. We don't want to know why that desire is there, and but God says no, and we think it's good, but God says no, and our heart seems right, and sometimes we just step back and we don't understand why at all. And sometimes at that point in our life, we just got to rest. We just got to rest knowing and trusting in God's sovereignty, and that's a hard thing to do. I talked about that some last week, that, uh, the, the, that the word rest is such a popular theme all through Scripture. We even see it in the first book of the Bible that God, after God created the heavens and earth in six days, that he rested. And we know God didn't rest because he was tired. He needed to take a day off and needed to take a nap. But instead, what God did was he set up a principle that he wanted all of us to follow. That rest is very important for our spiritual life, for our physical life, and for our emotional life, and for our stability. In our culture, sometimes we think rest is just taking a nap. But in biblical culture, rest means trusting in God. It means being able to sit back and do nothing because we trust that God's going to move on our behalf. Actually, rest isn't so much about doing nothing. Rest is actually defined as peace or ease or refreshment. But in order to rest, you have to trust that God's going to take care of things. See, the Bible talks about David was at rest. 
from his enemies. David's enemies still existed. They did still surround him. David's enemies still wanted to clobber David. They still wanted Jerusalem back. David could have been sitting on pins and needles saying, what if these enemies come back? What if they try to get Jerusalem? But yet David rested, trusting in the covenant promises that God had for him in the Bible, trusting that God said that your enemies are not going to come and take back Jerusalem. And he had the peace to know that God was going to protect him and watch over him. See, in some ways, rest is a very active thing that we do. We're actively trusting that God's going to take care of us. David had to war against his enemies. In the next chapter, David had to go war against the Philistines. He wasn't done battling his enemies, but David fought his enemies from the position of rest, meaning he's fought his enemies from the position of trusting that God is going to take care of things for him. So how do we know if we are at rest? How do we know if we have peace in our life? How do we know if we are walking in refreshment? How do we know if we are actually trusting God to take care of our enemies? How do we know? See, there's so much competition in our lives and in our world to influence our identity or to influence who we are. How do we know when we're actually allowing God to shape our identity instead of allowing social media to shape our identity? How do we know that? How do we know that we are becoming who God called us to be instead of we're becoming what our feelings and our circumstances tell us who we are? Because I think we'd all agree there's days that our feelings seem to be speaking pretty loud to us or our past seems to be speaking pretty loud to us. How do we know? I think the very first verse of 2 Samuel 7 says a lot about David. It says, When King David was settled... When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from the surrounding enemies, that's where, da- that's where God found David on the day that he gave him this huge promise. See, there's three things about David that we see in this verse. David was settled. What does settled refer to? When you talk about being settled, you're talking about taking care of a debt. You're talking about is somebody paid for a debt that you have incurred? And with David was settled because he knew that God was his savior. He knew his relationship with God had him secure for eternity and for salvation. And as followers of Jesus Christ, our first question is, are you settled that Jesus has paid your debt? Are you settled that Jesus has paid the price of your sins so you can take on Christ's righteousness? Is that settled in your mind? Are you settled that your sins are part of your past, that your feelings are nothing more than feelings? Are you settled with the fact that your circumstances do not dictate who you are? See, that's what God wants each of us to be. He wants us to be settled, knowing that Jesus Christ has taken care of everything for us. He wants us to be settled knowing that Jesus has paid our debt, that we don't have to try to pay our debt, that our debt of sins has been paid for once and for all. Are you settled today? Knowing Jesus is your Lord and Savior, or is that a little bit of a doubt for you? You know, if that's a bit of a doubt for you, you know, pray today that you would find the assurance in your salvation. But I'll be honest to you, some of it is working through challenges in your life to get settled. Settled isn't something that, poof, you happens overnight. We use that word settled a lot when people move into a house. Are you feeling settled yet? Nope, I still have a few more boxes to unpack. Sometimes in our life, we have a few more boxes to unpack before we might be settled. 
but I encourage you to keep unpacking, encouraging you to let God help you deal with those boxes in your life that need to be settled once and for all. Because that's how you find your peace, dealing with those boxes to get settled in the place that God has for you. I think sometimes we trip ourselves up in church thinking settle, settling happens just instantly overnight. Settling's a process. You know the place where David was. And he was, you know, he wasn't a young man when this was written. It took David a while to feel settled. So I encourage you to keep unpacking, to be settled. The second thing of the, that um, we see in the, the scripture about David is that David was living in a cedar house that he did not build. The word cedar refers to a very strong piece of wood in the Old Testament. Cedar was a sign of spiritual and physical protection. When you lived a house of cedar, that meant cedar was surrounding you and you were living in a hedge of protection. That's what God had for David, that he was living in a place of protection. And my question for you is, are you feeling that protection of God? Are you feeling that God is protecting you? Do you feel spiritually you're protected, emotionally you're protected? And maybe you're honestly like, Jack, I really don't feel that protected. And that's good to express your vulnerability before the Lord or maybe even before your friends to say, I don't feel that way. Because see, this is something God wants you to do for you so you can have that rest. God wants to work on your behalf so you have that safety and security knowing that God is watching out for you. And the third thing is that David had rest from his enemies. As we talked about, rest is simply that confidence knowing that God is going to take care of things for you. That, yeah, you have enemies. That, yeah, you have feelings. Yeah, you have circumstances. Yeah, you have your past. Some of these things are challenging to think about, deal with, but God says, I'm going to take care of those things for you. Are you resting in the sovereignty of God with a conviction and hope that God is going to take care of things for you? See, the greatness and grace of God gave David confidence in these three issues. See, because David was settled, because David was living in a cedar house, he could rest. And because David was, had this confidence, he could choose what God had for him. David could say no to the things that he really wanted to do. So David had a choice, build his own kingdom or build God's kingdom. See, God is building this eternal kingdom that's going to last forever. And that's why God said to David, no, I don't want you to build that temple. Instead, I have other things for you to do. It's interesting that David raised most of the money for that temple. And David gathered all the supplies that were needed to build the temple. But David didn't actually build it. But God had a role for David to do, and part of that role was to get the supplies to build the temple. See, God told David, you know, there's only one kingdom that's going to last forever. And that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Everything in your life is going to pass away. Nothing in your life is going to last forever except your relationship with Jesus and the influence that your life has had on other people to know Jesus Christ. So here's the invitation that first Jesus wants you to know him as your Lord and Savior. That Jesus wants you to feel settled and know that you paid the debt so you can live in his righteousness. But then God goes on after you're saved and have security in your relationship with him and says, okay, now I want to use you to build my kingdom. So God doesn't need you to build his kingdom, but he wants you to help him. He gives you that invitation. When he gives you that invitation, he equips you. So what was the greater purpose that God had for David? What was the greater purpose? 
God's greater purpose from David was his obedience. His greater purpose that he had from David was his obedience that would lead to all the generations coming to know who Jesus is. That's God's greater purpose, that your life would be used to impact the next generation to know who Jesus is. When they were finally, after Solomon, David's son, built the temple, they're at the place where they're dedicating the temple. And they're having a big ceremony and lots was going on. And in 1 Kings 8, verse 22, it describes some of the ceremony. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It says, When Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire community of Israel, he lifted up his hands towards heaven and he prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on earth below. You kept your covenant and showed unfailing love to all who walked before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You made that promise with your own mouth and with your own hands, and you have fulfilled it today. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, carry out the additional promise you made to your servant David, my father. For you said to him, If your descendants guard their behavior and faithfully follow me, as you have done, One of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. Now, O God of Israel, fulfill the promise to your servant David, my father. It's an interesting thing that long after David was dead and buried, God was still fulfilling his promises to David. That long after David was dead, God was still fulfilling his promises to David because God told David to guard his behavior and faithfully follow him. See, God understood that his behavior mattered to God. That how he responded to God determined how God would bless the future generations. See, David built, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but instead his son Solomon was the one who got to construct it. And for generations, descendants over of David reigned over Israel. But in the end, Jesus was born out of David's line. And Jesus rules today and forever. You never know what saying no to God is actually going to produce in your life. You never totally understand what obedience in your life is going to produce long term. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing to someday in your generational line, they look back and say, because of what that person did years and decades before, my life is different now. That's who we are. That's who we are called to be. We're called to be a people that our legacy goes way beyond our time on earth. God wants our obedience to last a lifetime. He wants our relationship with Jesus Christ to impact the future generation. So as our worship team comes forward, as Jake and Chad come forward, I want them to lead us in this final song. And you can sit down or stand up, but I want to reflect on that. Reflect on that question. Do you want to build God's kingdom or do you want to build your own kingdom? What are you doing in your life? Is your life directed at building God's kingdom or is it directed at making you satisfied with what you get to do right now? That's a tough question. I'm sure that wasn't that easy for David to say, all right. I'm going to give up that dream. But instead, he did it. So, Father, I thank you for this message, and I thank you, Father, that you are active in our life. That, Lord, 
through the Holy Spirit, we have a prophet, Nathan, sitting next to us, telling us what we can do and what we can't do to lead us and guide us and direct us. God, I pray that we would be people that are obedient to you, and we would be a people that is willing to sacrifice. Lord, I pray that through this next song, Lord, that you'd minister to each person here. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be strengthened and equipped to do what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.